All right, so we will continue from the heavenly scene uh, in the first chapter and in the sec second chapter where we saw uh, the sons of God presenting themselves to Yahweh and uh, Satan coming in among them and the challenge uh, to God's grace that was given by Satan. And we move from that scene to deal with what actually occurred, the actual tragedy on earth for Job that resulted from the spiritual warfare. Corresponding to those scenes in heaven, we have two phases of the tragedy that introduced the sufferings of Job in their totality. We will then, by looking at these two separate phases of this inaugurated suffering, see these sufferings as a whole prior to going back and seeing Job as the faithful servant and soldier of Yahweh as displayed in his responses. So next time we get together, Lord willing, we'll be able to talk about the responses of Job um, that uh, were victorious. So we have two different phases, phase one and then phase two. So phase one of the tragedy is found here in chapter one, is that which flowed from the challenge of Satan that God, that or rather Job, fears God only because of the secondary blessings that God had given him. In other words, the carrot at the end of the stick, that's what was driving Job. That was the challenge of, of Satan to the grace of God. So let us read. And we will begin reading in uh, verse 13. And there was a day when the sons where his sons and his daughters, that's Job's, were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And there came a messenger unto Job and said, The oxen were plowing, the asses were feeding beside them, and the Sabians fell upon them and took them away. Yea, they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came also another, and said, The fire of God has fallen from heaven, and has burned up the sheep and the servants, and consumed them. And I only am escaped alone to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came also another, and said, The Chaldeans made out three bands, and fell upon the camels, and have carried them away, yea, and slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in the eldest brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind, and the wind from the wilderness, and smote the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young men, and they are dead, and I only am escaped alone to tell you. There is here a detected intentionality to how this scene unfolds, both authorial intent and actor intent. 
The authorial intent is seen in how the narrative unfolds by asserting in a foreboding way the joyous feasting of the children of Job first, and then unfolding the narrative in a way that ends with that scene itself being brought to destruction. The narrative builds to that end, but that is not just because the author intended to be such, but due to the intent of the actor. Satan is building a narrative, and Satan designed a coordinated attack and aimed that attack at building an intensity and ending with a loss of that which was most important to Job, the blessing of his children. The text then flows from this opening contrast. And there was a day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in the eldest brother's house. The conjunction seems to introduce a specific day, a planned day, a coordinated day of wrath that falls out like a battle stratagem. The devil did not leave heaven on the day the sons of God presented themselves to the Lord and attack Job immediately. A separate day arose, which Satan in his cunning subtlety plotted and planned. And it might read, or might better be read, rather, as an opportune moment of attack when the sons and daughters of Job were in the house of the firstborn. Now, it catches me again, the mention of the firstborn, being the setting of the foreboding scene and highlighted again in the report of the tragedy that's uh, about to befall. And it's worth noting, it is a tragedy For the firstborn, the heir, the rightful ruler to perish. We see that in the plagues of Egypt, the firstborn must die. We see that on the death of the Protocos, on the cross, Jesus Christ, the firstborn. Uh, And after all, who is the rightful Protocos, or Bekor, as the word here in Hebrew, is one of the great themes of Scripture. We see that falling out with uh, Jacob and Esau and so on and so forth. It's a great theme of the Scripture. Here, it's simply the setting of the tragedy, uh, the loss of the firstborn, and all that is his first, along with all the others. So there can now be no heir. The writer leaves the truth of this possibility hanging for the readers as the narrative builds toward that tragedy. The narrative already introduced, after all, the children as a whole as being vastly important to Job. So the narrative is hooking us here with that emotion. And also we have the wine and the joy with the eating of the bread, creating this peaceful contrast that is ready to be altered at a moment's notice. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day Noah entered into the ark. Luke 17:27. And we pause here to remember, we know not our time. Job had previously worshipped and interceded for his children, and we are led to believe that Job possibly and probably did just do this and began the rest of his day. He left the altar of God, leaving his intercession 
burnt as a sweet savor to his God. His children were safe and joyous, celebrating the day, probably the birthday, of the eldest brother. Job would later speak of a moment of stillness when the Almighty was with him, as well as his children in Job 29.5. And this was the last of those moments. And so the stillness breaks. And there came a messenger unto Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the asses feeding beside them, and the Sabians fell upon them and took them away. Yea, they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped to tell you. This is the first of four steps in Satan's building narrative. Each follows the same pattern, and it's a good thing for us to go ahead and note that pattern here and then just fill in the content uh, later. Uh, so they have the same pattern uh, by, set forth by the actor, Satan, to bring us to a conclusion that the wrath of man and God was against Job. The friends of Job would later try to interpret that as being due to sin, and that is intentional. And if we were honest as we read through this, if we had no other context, we would be deceived by Satan in believing the same thing about Job as his friends. Let us then note the reoccurring themes. There is a messenger in each step. It is Satan's messenger, for he has brought this to pass as an attack on Job and therefore needs that messenger to go to Job. We have no reason to believe that these messages, messengers rather, were cowardly or unrighteous, only that the devil ensured their sole survival and that for an end. Here is the first of Satan's messengers to buffet Job. I think uh, I immediately think of the wording of Paul there in 2 Corinthians about his thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet him. After the four purposeful messengers of phase one, phase two will also have a messenger, and that's going to be Job's wife. And we can extrapolate the idea that Satan did not cease to work in this book after that. These three friends also came to play that role of being messengers of Satan to buffet Job, attempting ignorantly to get Job to curse God. And possibly even we add Elihu, young Elihu, who will begin speaking later in the book. Lesser to greater messengers are sent throughout this book till finally God interrupts the process in his mercy. The messenger does not always have an evil intent, when being used of Satan. After all, Peter was speaking out of love for Christ when he spoke for Satan in Matthew 16, 23, and was rebuked of Christ as such. As here shows, there's not an evil intent. And let it therefore remind us that just because it's a messenger, the, that with this idea of the messenger of Satan, that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. The word messenger here, malak, means one that is sent. And it's often in the scriptures translated uh, as angel. But here is indicated one that the devil sent or reserved from the fray in order to carry evil and disheartening news to Job. 
We have the messenger, and then the repeating pattern in all these is we have the message, the evil message. Here, it has a specific content, the oxen and the she-asses, or she-donkeys, rather. The cattle were plowing a specific section of Job's lands. The donkeys were close by, feeding in the grass, possibly in order to protect them or... Um, with the available servants, or it might just be that they were happened to be plowing near where they were kept. Uh, the pulpit commentary adds this. Note that notwithstanding the festival, labor was still going on. There was no general holiday. The oxen were at work in the field. Not perhaps all of them, but the greatest number of them at plowing time, because the plowing time is short in oriental countries, and the earing is all done at the same time. The bulk of Job's labors were probably engaged in this business, and they had brought the asses with them, probably to keep them under their eye, lest thieves should carry them off. Uh, this adds also to my uh, birthday hypothesis. Um, there's, this was not a general holiday or a recognized holy day that was being celebrated. But the first messengers was a huge loss, but not a total one. If the story ended here, that would be one thing. I mean, it would not have been a great tragedy in and of itself, but this was a huge loss. The message contained a loss and the means. Here, that means is the devil moving on men's hearts. The Sabians fell on the cattle and the donkeys. They took for spoil. They took and killed the servants who faithfully defend them. Literally, <coughs> the mouth of their sword devoured the servants. Now, who were the Sabians? Now, it's not particularly important, uh, but it is debated, and I'm not going to spend too much time here. Uh, the name is Sheba. That's at the base here. And there are three possible progenitors of this people, which all could fit in the general conclusion that Job was written prior to the Exodus and the giving of the law. The first possibility of this is from the Table of Nations, and that would be the grandson of Cush, Sheba, Genesis 10.7, which would answer to early, an early Ethiopian tribe. The Queen of Sheba, for instance, that visited Solomon, would have been part of, this, part of these Cushites. This is unlikely because of the distance from Mesopotamia, where Uz was. But a band of traders from, from these Ethiopian tribes was not beyond a possibility. The second possibility is that this is a grandson of Abraham, or uh, the, progen uh, the, the grandson of Abraham, the son of Jokshan, in Genesis 25-2, was their progenitor. This is the least possible, because outside of the obscure reference of namesake, there is little reason to believe that this person and the brotherly namesake Dedan, that is usually connected, were of any great significance and subject to any other scriptural reference. For instance, in Ezekiel 38, 18, where it talks about um, Sheba and Dedan, that could have much more likely be a reference to the table of nations, Sheba and Dedan, in Genesis 10, 7, than it is to the grandson of Abraham. The last possibility is the one I favor, and it's a due to its 
proximity to Job. Listed also in the Table of Nations, and that would be Sheba, the son of Joktan, the grandson of Eber, where we get the word Hebrew. This would be a fellow Semite nation like us in Genesis 10.23. But setting all that aside, this being, this, the possibility of this being Satan-influenced local politics and tribal conflicts would be highly unlikely. Satan had convinced them, most likely, that the tribe of Job, uh, or the tribe to which Job belonged, was weak or offensive in some way, and so moved them to attack and plunder. Satan is, after all, at work in politics. Regardless of the result, there was, I mean, regardless, the result is the same. Barnes offered this translation of the Septuagint that focused on the outcome. And the plunders coming plundered them. There is, in this repeating pattern, also one other step that shows up in each step. One other part of the pattern that shows up in each step. The totality expressed. So you have the messenger, the message, and then the totality expressed. Here, as in each, the messenger says, I only am escaped alone to tell you. Little needs to be pointed out in these words other than their desired impact. There is no reason to run to their aid. The loss is total. The loss is final. The reflexus use of the niffle verb has the messenger saying that they were only able to escape themselves from it, referencing the sword, and all others perish. The cause is now lost. They are only there to make the matter conspicuously known to Job, and nothing else could be done. The pattern in phase one repeats three more times, and we'll quickly look at those, differing only in the content of the message. The fact of the messenger and the fact of the totality of the loss is expressed and the content alone changes. The second messenger comes. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The fire of God has fallen from heaven and has burned up the sheep and the servants are consu- servants and consumed them, and I only an escape to tell thee. Note the additional conjunctive information and get a sense in real time the stress that is being laid upon Job in just a few short minutes in this coordinated attack. It literally says that while this one messenger was yet still or continuing to speak, ode is the word, this other messenger came and began speaking. Satan was attempting to overcome and overwhelm the saint. Matthew Poole captured this in his comment. This message came, he said, before he could even before he could have time to compose his disturbed mind and to digest this former loss, or indeed to swallow his spittle, as Job would later express in chapter seven, verse nineteen. This stress will crescendo as the narrative draws to its conclusion. It forces us to see that Satan is building a narrative to be believed, a false interpretation of the events, 
and anti-gospel. Here, also, I want to note that another sub-pattern in the narrative will begin to take shape. Fire from heaven is not man's wrath as before, but it's God's wrath. Thus, the message of Satan is intended. Satan is offering an intended interpretation to the events by how they are unfolding. He desired to show not only that the wrath of man was against Job, but the wrath of God also himself was. This pattern is repeated twice in phase one. Man, God, man, God. Giving two seemingly solid witnesses against Job. The pattern is flipped in phase two, with God attacking the body and the wife of his bosom being the disdain or wrath of man, while the wife also fulfills the pattern of the messenger of Satan as well. Fire from God here, that's the message. It fell. God is its origin, according to the message. The heavens are its source and instruments. It is fire from God falling from heaven. The stars in their course fought against Job. Compare that with Judges 5.20. It burned and consumed Job's sheep and his servants. There can be no doubt about the narrative Satan's building here. It could be a euphemism, the fire from God could be a euphemism for lightning, but the total effect is to paint a picture of the sim, uh, uh, of God's wrath, much the same way you would have with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, fire devouring the people who came against Elijah, or fire devouring the sons of Aaron in Leviticus ten two. Keel believes, and I believe, and I agree with him, that the intention of the writer could have attended nothing other than fire and brimstone coming down. Benson connected this with Satan's title of being the prince and power of the air in Ephesians 2, 2, and 3, where he said, We need not wonder that this fire and storm were so destructive since they were raised by him who is emphatically termed the prince and power of the air and who now has permission to use his power to the utmost against the property of Job. Thunder is termed in Hebrew the voice of God and the messengers terms this lightning the fire of God, not knowing that the evil spirit had a hand in causing it. And the pattern end of the message, stressing its totality, is again repeated here. It's hopeless. Only the servant was able to escape, this time referencing the fire. Then we have the third step. The third step in the process with the same stressing emphasis. While that messenger was still speaking, another came and started speaking. While he was yet speaking, there came also another, and said, The Chaldeans made out three bands, and fell upon the camels, and have carried them away, yea, and slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped to tell you. The content here is further apparent, and satanically, a satanically influenced local politic. The Chaldeans raided the camels of Job by making three bands, or troops, probably due to maybe 3,000 camels being separated into three folds, or maybe it was just a uh, tactical strategy to separate in three bands, we don't know. But they carried them away. As a matter of doctrine, by the way, God decreed these things to be, 
Satan influenced them, but there is nothing to suggest that the Chaldeans or the Sabians before were not all too willing to steal and kill in their sinfulness. There is no contradiction between God's sovereignty, demonic influence, and liberty exercised by fallen humanity. The Chaldeans, like the Sabians, killed the servants of Job as well, the mouth of the sword smiting them to death. Gill stated, these Satan could easily instigate to come and carry off Job's camels. Ellicott believed without warrant, uh, or without evidence or warrant, I believe, that these Chaldeans were children of Kesed, the son of Nahor, the brother of Abraham, in Genesis 22.22. However, the context of the table of nations is a far better fit. These are the Chaldeans of Genesis 11.28. Some believe that the modern-day Kurds are descended from these. Whether or not that's so, I don't know. They, But whoever these were, the Chaldeans were known as people who lived on the spoil. They easily fit into the context of post-flood Mesopotamia. Again, the messenger brought an utterly hopeless, evil message of despair. And then there is the crescendo of despair. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young men, and they are dead. And I only am escaped to tell thee. There is a shift in the conjunctive flow here that is worth noting, and is best explained by the, this comment from Keel. Instead of ode, we have another word here, ad. The former denotes continuity in time, the latter continuity in space, and they may be interchanged. It ceased, rather, here to be a narrative and began to be real. This is real loss. This and that are passing, but this is here and now and will not go away. The conjunctive seems to indicate the end of a process. It is as if all was adding up to this moment. This is Satan's capstone. The foreboding declaration about the children is reintroduced verbatim. The Paul Puck commentary contains this note that's worth sharing. It is a common proverb that misfortunes never come singly. Shakespeare says, They come not single foes, but in battalions. Still so overwhelming a series of calamities falling upon a single individual, all in one day could not but strike those who heard of them as abnormal and almost certainly supernatural. The messenger brought the terrible message, and in the same sense of stress, stress, while the other messenger was still speaking, this messenger came and started speaking. That's a lot happening in real time. The wrath of God, again, is the message. A whirlwind came over, probably referring to something across a river or sea. The whirlwind came over from the wilderness, probably the desert. 
and smote or completely engulfed the house where the youths were. It was complete and final, and only the message of its totality hits the ears of a loving and faithful father. They are all dead. If God's grace were not there, this trial would crush anyone. But God's grace was, and by God's grace, Job will stand. Before we move on, we just need to mention something about phase two. In chapter two, the devil failed and the grace of God stood in Job. Satan attained license from God to attack again. This time, Job himself, in his body, in his flesh and bones. We know the wife will fulfill the pattern of the messenger of Satan and the wrath of man. But since her message is distinctly related to Job's lighter response, we'll deal with her message separately next time we get together. Here, I just want to mention what happened in phase two. So went Satan from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown. Satan struck or caused Job to be smitten with boils in totality. The word translated boil means a burning or inflammation and was attributed with the quality of being evil. He was covered from scalp to the sole of his foot. He is it is he it is related to what would be described in other scriptures as a botch. Deuteronomy 28.7, Exodus 9.10, Isaiah 1.6. The modern disease of elephantiasis, I hope I pronounced that correct, which is an extreme form of leprosy in which skin becomes clotted and hard like an elephant's with painful cracks and sores underneath, according to Ellicott. It was translated as a foul ulcer in both the Vulgate and the Septuagint, something filled with bile. Barnes connected it with other forms of uh, leprosy spoken of in the scriptures, such as that described in the books of Moses. It is known, said Barnes, as the black leprosy, to distinguish it from more common disorder called white leprosy. What it does is set, it sets the context of Job in all that proceeds in the rest of the book. A man, Job was, in extreme physical pain and spiritual and emotional anguish. The physical anguish will continue to be described and will give further context to our text. And I want to just kind of run down, down real quick. Whatever these boils were, they caused restlessness, covered with them him with festering sores, and worms were bred in those sores, according to Job 7, 4, and 5. It caused him to gnash on himself with his teeth in pain, Job 13, 14. Because of it, he wept constantly, and it dried up his skin. Job 16, 8 and 16, 19, 20 and 26. It fouled his breath. 
Job 17.1. It caused intense pain that robbed him of his sleep, Job 30, verse 7. It turned his skin black with inflammation, Job 30, verse 30. And it caused him to be unrecognizable to those who knew him, Job 2.12. And in all this, he had no hope of recovery and only the expectation of eventual excruciating death. That is the sufferings of Job. To all around that heard of this happening, there was no reason to believe anything other than the interpretation the devil has offered. This man is forsaken of all, even God. And yet in this state, the grace of God is yet sufficient, as will be proved. In all this, Job will conquer. And let us remind ourselves that as this message applies to where you and I are, we have this in the scriptures. Romans 8.35 Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famineness, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I pray you receive something from the word of God today. Lord bless.